Welcome to episode five of The Aftermath, show where Daniel and I sit down on the Monday following a Sunday service and we banter about issues that come out of discussion that we had on Sunday. So Daniel, what's on your mind this morning? Uh, yeah, just I'm having the Mondays. <laughs> like uh, it's it's like exciting and fun. Like you get the energy of like, oh, we get to create something totally new this week. You know, it's you like Monday seems like creation day. It's like the podcast gets done and then we start working on new songs and, the, and, and you start working on the new sermon and we find out what the next week holds. But it's like, that is a, uh, that's a work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to be able to turn it around, especially now that we have two services on Sunday, it's a little more yeah. taxing and it takes a little more energy. Yeah. So I don't know about you, I, I passed out yesterday for a little while, had a nice little nap. <laughs> no, no, I, but we, 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 the church is now decorated for Christmas. Yeah, yeah. So. That was exciting, and uh, so I did that, and then uh, did a little side work, and yeah, I, I, I fell asleep last night at like ten thirty, and like I woke up at like you know nine this morning, like oh crud, <laughs> I'm late. <laughs> so it happens. Yeah, so definitely got my sleep in yesterday and kind of recouped, but uh, and ready to hit it again hard this week. Have any thoughts or anything hit you yesterday yeah, as we like, were in services? You went over some of the themes of of John, so we're talking about. Um, uh, the Gospel of John, and uh, one of the themes that you hit on, and, and you, it kind of centers around Nicodemus and the rebirth and like the recreation. I, and I didn't, I never put together that like John does go back to the creation story. He brings that forward and says, "Hey, there's a new creation," and and that we that us being reborn is a part of that new creation. I thought that was like super interesting. Yeah. And um, that, that's a theme. I, I suppose I first read it most succinctly or clearly. There was an early church father. I think we've mentioned him before. His name was Athanasius, but he makes that point that the Bible from front to beginning is a story of, of creation, obviously with the Genesis story, but then the revelation story is obviously the, the point of new creation, the new world, the new heaven, the new earth uh, ends up being completely redone but that act of salvation itself, the act of Jesus on the cross, the incarnation was an act of recreation. It was itself a creative act. And I think John is a lot of the foundation for where Athanasius gets that. Uh, yeah. He definitely is telling the story as a new Genesis story. I mean, he has those themes of, of the beginning. We mentioned on Sunday, he uses the exact same phrase that opens Genesis when he says in the beginning was the word. And then the word being made flesh is parallel to the, creation of Adam and Eve. And then I don't know that I had picked up on before studying for this week but was when Pilate presents Jesus to the crowd and he says, behold the man, as if like, here's the moment when oh. man, like this is the man, this is the model, this is the quintessential man. This is, this is what God set out to create. Here's the example. I always love those stories that like, we talked about uh, earlier, God being with us when we were talking about the Holy Spirit for, for the Acts week. And in the beginning, you know, God walked in the garden right. with man yep. and then the Holy Spirit comes and God is with us again. And in Revelation 22, it talks about, you know, behold, God is with his people and, and mm -hmm. he's going to dwell with them. So those themes that span beginning, middle, and I'm just like discovering those, you know, in my, in my early thirties, like, oh, these are, this is, this happened in the beginning. It's happened in the middle and it's, and it's happening. Oh, yeah. and this is the ultimate plan. Like, right. It, it is the story, right. That's being told. Yeah. And, and like, I feel like we find more things about God. Okay. Well, like God's obviously a creator. He created in the beginning. He's creative throughout the, throughout the, the, the work of the, the, the Bible. And then 
in the end, we see him creating the new heavens and the new earth. And we see God as a God who wants to be with his people. Mm-hmm. And you see that beginning, middle, and end. So those things are starting to really shape who I see God as. Um, right. And I assume that's the point of the, the, <laughs> the teachings. Oh, yeah, like... This is this is who God is, and this is what He's about. He's a God who creates. He's a God who wants to be uh, with His people. Um, yeah. One of the things that blew my mind, um, and you briefly you just glanced on past this in the in the sermon. Like two weeks ago, we were in the office uh, chatting about the people did not know that like, they knew a Messiah was coming, but they did not know it would be God. Right. So, yeah, that was a really like eye-opening conversation that you and I had yeah. for you. It seemed like <laughs> my my mind was exploding at that because when when I look because I've known like Jesus is God like since I was a child I was you know born you know like in that's church, the story like, we're given at yeah, four years old and yeah so I read that back it. onto the Old Testament scriptures like how did they not know and, and I read that you know in the New Testament when all these people are coming against Jesus it's God as a man they had to know they didn't know. They no, didn't they know didn't. he would come as God. No, no. The um, the expectation on the on the part of part of Israel and the Jewish people was that God would send a Messiah, but that was expected to be a, a person, a king like David, right? It was it was the next David. Yeah. And it would be God's anointed one. And there were two themes that were coming together, and that was the the Messiah, the anointed one, but then also the suffering servant that comes out of Isaiah. And those two things were being merged in the thought of the sort of rabbinic and religious teaching thought of that sort of second temple period. So in the, the, you know, a couple hundred years leading up to Jesus, those ideas were starting to be merged together. They were starting to go back and read the text and understand, okay, well, there's gonna be this Messiah and and he may have to suffer, but you're right. the, The idea that it would be God himself was not on their, it was not on the table. Right, that that was not within their frame of thinking that there would be a Messiah who was a man that in some way, somehow would be God. Yeah. And that's in the Synoptic Gospels, what gets in Jesus in so much trouble. I think I think it was the Sunday I mentioned, maybe it was in the first service that when he goes in front of the Sanhedrin on the night that he's arrested, the question that he's posed is, Do you, did you claim to be the son of God, to be, to, to be divine? And that's when he turns to the leader at the point and says, well, you said it, not me, right? It's kind of like ironically, yeah. like it's kind of like a tongue in cheek, yes, like yeah. well, you said it. Um, <laughs> that's ultimately what really sets them on fire is when he, he, you know, he rips his clothes and they start yelling at him. And, and that's the moment where they, they deem him worthy. They've got, they've got the charge that's worthy of execution in their system. But yeah, this, this idea that the Messiah would ultimately be God was not something that Judaism expected. It was it was a surprise. When we were talking about that in the the coffee room over there, I was just my my mind was blown and like kind of opened up to like oh, okay, this is why this is this is why they didn't get it, and then they went and they weren't even open to it. Right. And like it, it challenges me like to in my my daily circumstances. Oh, God could show up, you know, and I don't want to miss it because I'm not looking for God because they weren't looking for God to show up. They were looking for a man. Mm-hmm. So like in my day to day, like I, I have to be looking for, you know, that, that same God to show up in, in my day to day and not necessarily be focusing on what my, my thoughts and my, what I think should go on and what I think should happen just kind of draws you closer to, to God because I have to hear from him. And, and Jesus, Jesus even talks to Peter about this. He's flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but, 
but God did. And like, we have to have that connectedness, I think, to God because flesh and blood is never going to, you know, people are never going to reveal the deep thing of God to us. Yeah, that's exactly true. And, and mm-hmm. as you've been talking, I've been thinking about the, the moment when Jesus walks on the road to Emmaus with the, the two disciples and they don't recognize him. And we're told that he opens up the scriptures to them and all of a sudden they, they get it. And part of that conversation that you and I had a couple weeks ago or last week or whenever that was, was coming to realize that there, there is, there's always this discussion about what the texts mean and what they meant, yeah. right? And, and as those prophecies were written, they were primarily understood to be about Israel. So when Isaiah is talking about the one to come, the son of man, the servant of God, that was largely being understood as Israel, like Israel was the son of God, right? So Israel personified yeah. in those prophecies. And that's part of the reason, of course, that they never expected Messiah in the way that it happened because in some ways they, for a long time, they thought themselves as the Messiah for the world, right? They were the chosen people. They were the anointed ones of God that, through whom the world would be blessed. Then it becomes apparent, oh, that there's actually going to be a singular person but again, never understood to be God himself. And what I imagine happens on the road, what we see the New Testament writers doing is exactly kind of what you had explained, you have done always is read back to the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. Yeah. And all of a sudden we see all the ways in which what was being taught and said and done and the, the events that are happening are marching towards Jesus as God himself enfleshed as the Messiah but going the other direction, you might never come to that conclusion. It's only having looked at Jesus. To your point, it's only, it's not flesh and blood. It's not the writing, it's not the people that understood that and could explain that. It's only God himself that can bring <laughs> that, that understanding about. Yeah. That's super puzzling for just the way that we learn things, you know, like, like it's truly a cryptic text where like you have to have the, the cipher in order to look back and truly under, understand the text. You don't read any other book that way, right? No, not really. <laughs> you basically, because you have to read it all the way forward. You get to the end and you get this key whereby you can go back and read it again, but you read it a completely different way now understanding the ending. And there's yeah, a spiritual it's, aspect because it's not it's not Father, Son, and Holy Bible like it's a, it's a, so it is a it, it is like you know it, it's our text it's it's a religious text but like there's obviously some sort of spiritual aspect that also has to come in and aid your understanding and that is one of the things that John t- is telling us is he writes in such a way that that he's explicit he tells us that he's writing with the aid of the Spirit that he's going back and understanding even the events of Jesus's life in light of the illumination that he's been given by the spirit. And he's inviting us to go and read his story with that help, knowing that it's only with that help as you come to read these stories that you will get to ultimately this moment of full faith that he hopes and he intends his story to bring you to, right? But he even admits it requires the Holy Spirit. It isn't just sitting down and reading the text objectively that, it's, it's not A plus B equals C here. It's right. we have to read this and allow God to move in us to help us understand it and see it in such a way that brings us to belief. That's a, a different approach to reading your Bible than a, some normal kind of pursuit or study that you have, that you're actually partnering with, with God to understand this uh, literary work. It's, that's super interesting, super informative, like for 
you know, if we have someone out there who's like, I'm reading this, I don't get it. Like you said, I think that's a good uh, kind of roadmap to, you know, you, you read you read the whole thing, kind of get like a general thing and then take the lens of Jesus and as like kind of a magnifier and go back and you can kind of uh, decipher some of the meaning and and it just opens up the, the text. How does that, for you coming off yesterday's discussions, how does that interface with this whole issue of doubt, which is really where we spent a lot of our oh, time? Yeah, the main point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, when you first said it, I was like, mm. <laughs> and uh, so so basically, you came out and said, you know, Thomas Thomas had these doubts, and it's okay for us to have these doubts. And like, I think I come from a background where it's not okay to have doubts if you have doubt that's that's a bad thing like you have unbelief in your heart that's that's not good but like the way the way in which it's cleared up by Jesus actually coming you know and having an encounter with him and like all of a sudden your your, your doubts just not that big anymore and you realize like oh, okay I still don't understand that thing but like I don't doubt this mm-hmm. I don't I don't doubt in the way that that the way that it's applicable for me is one of the things you talked about was not tucking your doubts away which a lot of people do what do you say it turns into? It's repression. It's yeah, a, rep- I mean, repression. It's a psychological that, reality that yeah, and we do in all areas of our life. But. Yeah, like you're literally doing yourself harm. I didn't realize like, oh yeah, like I'm doing myself harm by pushing some things back and like not addressing them. Like obviously I don't want to be led around by my doubts, but not keeping them quiet is equally as important. I, yeah, I definitely don't want to do harm to myself. <laughs> yeah. By, yeah, I think that, you know, we have a, a tradition, particularly in evangelical churches where I think I've experienced it the most or, or seen it taught the most, but I'm sure it's pre- been prevalent in every avenue and every expression of church at one point or the other, but is this idea that you just need to believe. And if you have a question, well, don't worry about the question, just yeah. believe, right? Like yeah. that's not important. Well, that's that's really just not honest because well, yeah, maybe there are some, you know, minimal issues here or there that at the end of the day aren't huge theologically or don't have an, an impact. But one, I don't think even those need to just be shoved to the side as if they're completely unimportant. I don't think anything is ultimately unimportant, but there are there are big questions. And I think plenty of well-intentioned faithful people have meant well when they say, just have just have faith, just believe. But what that has said and the way that's been heard is shove your, shove your doubt, shove your question under the rug and just move on with your life. It's not that big of a deal. When in fact, for a lot of people, there are things that are big deals. Yeah. They are either intellectually uh, incongruent. So it, it's a sort of, how do we reconcile this teaching with that teaching or this doctrine or, or how do I understand a miracle that, you know, logically, scientifically, we don't have any explanation for. It, don't, it seems virtually impossible. Like there's some mental and intellectual dissonance there for yeah. sure. And we as the church need to recognize that, yes, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are things that don't conform to science <laughs> that are being taught. Right. And what do we do with that? We need to look at ourselves and say, what do we do with that? But then we also need to allow other people to have those questions and invite them into the, into the process of answering it. But I think that the biggest problem with saying just don't ask that question or just push it to the side or just just believe is, well now, well, now what you have very literally done is you've said, okay, well, this part of me is wrong. Is, 
Well, yeah. is what? Is wrong. Like, well, one is wrong, but this part of me, either God doesn't care about or is not under God's sovereignty and rule in my life. Yeah. Right. God has nothing to say to this. Yeah. Right. We're basically saying there is no answer to your question. It's not worth asking. So just ignore it. Is to say, don't ask us and don't ask God. As if God can't provide some clarity or something that that does make it okay. Yeah. And I guess what is so profound in the this moment with Thomas is as we said on Sunday, like he, he said he can't, he won't believe unless he's, he touches it himself. And then Jesus shows up in this miraculous way and says, go ahead and touch me. And in that moment, Thomas doesn't touch him, right? The thing that Thomas thought he needed in order to believe becomes a non-issue then, not because he shoved it to the side, but because Jesus overwhelmed the concern, right? right? Jesus became so real that this is no longer a doubt or concern that stands in the way of him believing who Jesus is. I guess that's the point yeah. is that there are lots of things which we just won't necessarily understand and that's okay. But it's not okay until you have that encounter with, that's with, what, with that's the what living I'm saying. God. Right, right, it's, yeah. you're right, it's not. But when, when the church has said, don't ask it, what we're saying, what I was trying to get everyone to understand is like, it's okay for you to have that doubt, bring that to God and allow yeah. him to, to address it. And it may be that it, you have this encounter and then it becomes no longer an issue. It may be something, it moves from this, this thing that stands in the way of my giving myself fully over to God yeah. into this piece, this, this thing that, you know what? I just don't understand right now, Yeah. but I've met God. I've met like, I, I can't doubt the existence of God and the goodness of God. Well, it informs the way that you think about God. Repressing that and holding it back is actually going to hinder your encounter that's gonna answer that question in the first place. Sure. Because does Thomas have that encounter with, does Jesus show up when Thomas is there in that very real way and personal way, does that happen if Thomas doesn't voice his concern? Yeah. I don't think it does. So or if I he says, I, I, I don't believe it and he goes home, he's still around, right? right? He still ha- has his doubt in the midst of the, the community of faith holding your doubt and staying in. So m- most of the times when someone has a doubt, we're like, okay, you're no longer in, you're, you're out. Like that yeah, doubt that's that you- a, That's a bad question. That one's off limits. You're no longer part of our family. Yeah. And, and in certain spaces, like having that doubt or having an, a, an opinion or a thought about God that's not congruent with the orthodoxy can land you on the outs. And like, we're literally hindering people from that encounter. Yeah. You know, I, I got, I've been told before, you're saying something by even asking that question. And I, as a result of that, am questioning your salvation and I will be praying for you. <laughs> that is a line that gets given a lot, Yeah. right? So, I mean, what does that say? Like th- the fact that you have a question and, and probably a good question, yeah. it certainly is a good question for you because you don't understand it. But the fact that you have a question means you don't have faith and your salvation isn't, no, y'all, no, not at all the more you learn, the more questions you're going to have, right? You're just, you're just, it's like you said the other day, you're peeling back an onion, yeah. you know, and, and answers to one question leads to four more questions. And it is in that questioning, that's the process of discipleship, right? We, we're wrestling with these issues time and time again and allowing God to answer them sometimes or set them aside for us. Uh, but it's like you said before, it's different repressing them and not bringing them to God is different than bringing them for God and allowing him to sort of overwhelm them and make them moot. Yeah. Right. That's 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 an act of God and an act of the spirit. 
in which you just so firmly believe in God and his goodness and who he is that some of these things that you don't understand become okay. This is something you talked about, I think maybe it was in the first few months that you were uh, here at Emmanuel. You, you talked about a bounded set versus a... Yeah, centered set. Centered set. That bounded set mentality is or, or literally keeping people from God in this instance, uh, keeping people out. Like who was... So Thomas was in the, the upper room, right? Mm-hmm. Where the, the doors would have been locked. And like, I think back to Peter who like obviously had these crazy encounters, you know, and even in, in John... Who, who, who was with them, like, those guys were there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and they had these crazy encounters with God, you know, Mount, of Tra- Mount Transfiguration. Peter was like the first to kind of acknowledge like, oh yeah, you are the God man. He's in the same room with those guys, you know, and there's obviously, th- there had to be some sort of conversation between them, right? They didn't kick him out. That's really interesting to me and not something I've seen in the church normally. As soon as someone has like that kind of question, it's like, that question is not welcome here and no, and no longer are you like, so we, we look at a guy like Thomas uh, who has, you know, these questions and, uh, you know, Jesus confronts and, and you, and, and he did Peter the same way. So Peter denies Jesus three times and then Jesus comes right at him. Like, do you love me? And, and Peter, like, I'm sure is just sweating bullets. Yeah. I love you. I, I promise <laughs> I do. And those encounters, were caused, it's funny because we have shortcomings and we think, ah, oh, I'm not worthy of being in contact with God or like I should hide from God. You know, like Adam in, in, the, in the garden, like, oh, I've committed, a, I've committed a sin. Like, let me hide. Jesus is looking to confront. He's not looking. That, that's one of the things about like Peter and Thomas that I appreciate. They didn't hide. They mm-hmm. didn't run away. They stayed there with their, with their questions and with their with their doubts and, and with being with their fear in Peter's case, I find it like really comforting that Jesus goes to those people. He doesn't, he doesn't like shun them. Mm-hmm. He goes right at them. I think you put your finger on one of, you talk about themes, right? Yeah. That function throughout the, the whole story. And certainly within the New Testament narrative, that that is very much a theme. And I think this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about, you know, Christ is made perfect in his weakness. It is, it is in our doubts and our failures and in the midst of our sinfulness when God shows up. It's not in our pretending that we have all of it, all of it together. It's yeah. not in going out as if you have all the answers and you have no doubt. Like God's glory is not shown in that moment. Think about when you've, different people respond to like testimonials differently, but think about when you've, you've heard one of those that actually meant something to you, right? It's always someone telling a story when they've come to a point of brokenness and utter despair that Jesus finds them, yeah. right? It is, in, it is in the brokenness. So why as a church would we cast people out for being honest with their doubts, their brokenness, their sinfulness? That is the place where we as a church rally, right? That's the place where Jesus is gonna show up. It's like, and, and we're not, we're no way celebrating disbelief. We're not celebrating sinful action. What we're celebrating is God's ability to meet that head on, as you said, when Peter denies him, Jesus shows right back up, right in his face three times. You know, Peter denied three times, three times Jesus comes back and says, do you love me? Yeah, I love you, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Like again and again, 
he combats that, right? That's him coming into us, being skeptical of him, denying him, doubting him, thrusting himself in the midst of that mess and that muck, meeting us there and overcoming it. Yeah. Right. So, you know, when I say, and I've said, you know, I said on Sunday, like, I love questions. I love the doubts. I love those conversations because that's when Jesus shows up. It's when someone honestly says, you know what? This is a real hangup for me. I don't understand this. Okay, let's sit down and have that conversation. You know, it's, it's that moment when two or three are gathered in Jesus's name when he shows up and he provides clarity, understanding uh, or something to in some way make it okay. And so we should be inviting those things. We should be inviting people to wrestle, to, to question, to, to bear their sinfulness. We, we got to pick those scabs in order to allow healing to take place. Yeah, I think, I think I've come up in a culture and, and I'm, I'm sure this is true for a lot of people that God's only going to show up if you're, you know, you're living a certain way, you believe a certain set of things, like that's when God, God shows up. But, you know, the more I've, I study and the more that like we kind of go over it, it seems like the lightning rod for God showing up yeah. is, is our mess, right. you know, is when, when I've totally failed and just utterly, you know, biffed it big time or like when I'm having a doubt or like those are the times when God shows up. Yeah. Like, right. When you said, I've grown up in a culture where you, you know, God shows up when you have it together, you know who that is? That's the Pharisees. That was very literally what they were trying to do. They were trying to be faithful. We have this popular understanding and it's a misunderstanding of who they were. They're not just trying to beat people over the head with rules and religion understood that way so that they can have control. What they are trying to do is get everyone to fulfill their half of the covenant. They're trying to call people back to this purity culture, this, uh, this right way of acting to purify the nation. And in doing that prepares the way for the Messiah. So th- that's the argument the Pharisees are making. Right? Yeah. We have in, in the story of Jesus, this very debate going on where the Pharisees are saying, everybody's gotta, we gotta, we, we gotta get our act together, Israel. We have to do things right. We have to follow the rules. And when we can perform properly, when we can uphold our side of the covenant, when we can be faithful, then God will be faithful. Right. It, you have, it's hilarious that you have at that same time, they're trying to get it, get it together and like, do all those things and, and uh, do every every law and every rule. Jesus is right there in their midst, passing right by them. Yeah. And they're not they're they're not getting the revelation. They're not getting the understanding. Mm-hmm. They're not reaping the miracles because and they're mad at him because he's not following the rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Know? Well, like the the rule would would assume that the people in the place of the Pharisees, like these guys, are trying to do it right. That's not the way that Jesus does it. Not at all. All of those purity laws he kind of breaks because he understands that the moral law is far superior. I mean, he does exactly what we just said. He, he goes to the messiness. Yeah. Right. That's that's where Jesus goes. It, it's 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 the the interesting part to me is they missed him. Mm-hmm. Like, and how many times are we in our as we're repressing every question that we have, and as we're you know, like in like, obviously like a good, like we're in a pursuit mode, like of God, how many times are we missing him? Because we didn't just say, I, I, I broke this and I can't fix it. Yeah. And how many people that are prepped for an encounter with God, are we just, are we leaving on the outside? 
because they don't fit the the mold that we have set, you know, the juxtaposition of the Pharisees trying their very best to prepare themselves for the Messiah to come and the Messiah to actually be there at the same time is uh, unsettling and mind boggling mm-hmm. and uh, funny all at the same time. This is really uh, a timely conversation. There was a study that I just saw, it just came out this week. It's on why atheists become Christians and why Christians become atheists. Like what is, they did a, a legitimate psychological breakdown study of of people who had made that movement one way or the other. And they found that what causes a Christian to become an atheist is exactly what we're talking about. It is an unbending performance culture and an inability to allow for questions that force people away from their faith. Wow. It, it is in giving people a faith that doesn't provide room for God to come into the messiness. It says instead there should be no messiness, that you, you need to have it all together, that Jesus is missed and people don't get it and they leave. Yeah, I like what you said, it didn't make room in that culture. Like they've not made room for God with all the stuff that they're doing. Yeah, they've created, and we, we as a church, um, as, a, as a performance culture church, have created a God who's on a pedestal that we serve that we, we model in some ways, we think we're modeling by our right performance, but we have not allowed room for God to come and be present, right? There's no room for God to be with us. Oh man. Yeah. It's all about us. And we sort of like pushed the mess out and, and we think we've cleaned it up for God to come. What we've done is we've, we've, we've eliminated the space where he actually does come. Oh, this is so good. Yeah. Yeah. Like I love that. I, I love that. Like, and I think in a lot of cases, like we, we have, we've eliminated that space where he comes and where he's, he's with his people. Like, and that's God ultimately wants to be with the, in the Beatitudes, it talks about that, that he's, he's close to the, the lowly and the poor in spirit. And because they're in tune with their mess. I mean, that's what that's all about. Right. It's, it's being open and honest and embracing the doubt, the brokenness, the inadequacy that we all have, we know we have it. It's those who are honest about it that God comes to. It's those that shove it to the side and pretend like it doesn't exist that are far from God. That is incredible. And it's, it's comforting to know that like in my mess, that's, that's where God's gonna show up. It like, is. It's also uncomfortable for those of us who f- have for so long wanted to appear like we've got it together. And I don't think any of us are really comfortable publicly addressing our messes, right? We, we fear judgment from our peers, our friends in the world, but also in the church, Yeah, right? Because we've created these, these communities that are so intent upon being pure and being right and appearing like we've got it together and not doubting and being the the good example of what a good Christian should be doing, that when we come face to face with our problems, we find out that the churches and the communities that we're part of aren't actually safe spaces to deal with that. Yeah. And that's gotta change. And that's, you know, that's one of the, one of the ways we're pushing here at Emmanuel is to become that safe space. We talked about uh, Jesus talking about the mustard seed and, and becoming 
this the kingdom becoming this tree that then the birds of the world come and nest in. And that is an image of being a safe place where people can come and rest and find peace. We just need to get much better at dealing with our own messes and allowing people to do it for themselves too and helping them through that. Yeah. One of the things you put out on social this week uh, was about not being a monolithic church and kind of inviting the diversity Mm -hmm. um, into the church. And one of the things you highlighted was diversity of opinion. In retrospect, looking at this sermon, like what you've actually invited is encounter with God. You've invited some of the things that could be a mess in our lives some of the big questions, the doubts that we have, you've invited them in. And now you've given space for God to work because we've come in, we can come in with our doubt and say, Hey, I don't know. I don't know about that. Like, I don't know about the Holy spirit, like God with us. Like that's, that's foreign to me. Mm-hmm. Those people can now come in and say, yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah. That gives space, you know, for God yeah. to move. And I, I think as a church, we need to be, as those of us who, who do believe, who do have, have come to this place or been led to this place of, of full belief, we need to resist the temptation to be offended by that or think in any way that that question or doubt impugns our belief or makes less true what we, like if we have true belief, it's true, like it's true, right? Yeah. Like God is true, our experience of the spirit. Someone coming in, not having had that experience or questioning that, doesn't change that. It, well, like you said, Thomas is the guy who didn't have the experience because he, <laughs> I don't know if he was on a food run or whatever when Jesus shows up to the rest of them, but he's not there. And I think we need to have that grace for people to let them in. They, they weren't there for, for the first encounter with God, you know? Yeah. Um, and they still have their disbelief and their doubts and they still let Thomas in. He's still one of the 12, like, and he still has a space uh, and they're, you know, they're hiding, they're, they're hiding out. Like you would think, you know, people of the same, like a uh, group, you know, if someone breaks ideology within that group and they're in danger, you know, they, they, they could be hunted at any moment. This dude is left. He, he, he's not buying into what we're saying. Like it's probably time to get him out or we're all going to die. It, it shows a lot about, so they had that encounter with God. So it shows a lot about what an encounter with God will do to you as far as putting your own, you know, your, your, your safety and your, you know, you're right. Like you, they knew he was resurrected. They saw him, but they didn't like push Thomas out because he didn't. Yeah. I think that's not something that I talked about at all yesterday, but that's a really, I think a really important point yeah. to be made, which I think is, is the larger point that we're making for the, the church to hear is that we've got to make that space and allow for that space and be, okay with people who may disagree or have questions. Um, I mean, just think back through your, your own personal life. Like how many things have you changed your mind on? A lot. Beliefs that you had as a kid that as you learned more, you, you changed or you've had your eyes opened to the meaning of a scripture that you never saw before. I mean, I, I, I hope that all of you have had that experience. If you haven't, as I've said before, I mean, if you're not changing your mind on things and growing, are you a disciple? Like you're either, you're either saying, I've got it all together and I know everything. Or you're saying, dear God, please show me where I'm wrong and teach me to be more like you. And that latter requires you to go through this process of relearning and being challenged and, and changing your mind on things. I've been in like, uh, you know, heavily denominational churches where like there's this 
the goal that we're trying to get to isn't encounter with Jesus and it's not better understanding. It's, it's adherence to these principles, this systematic theology, Mm -hmm. like, are you aligned with this? And what we're running into right now is that's not the mark that we're trying to hit. It's not some adherence to some systematic belief. It's revelation upon revelation. And that's not to say that there isn't a system of belief or right. there isn't, and we've said before, there, there very much is a, like a core doctrine about who Jesus is. And that's what John is giving to us is this understanding of Jesus as God in flesh that came to live with us, incarnate, made flesh to teach, to model, but then also to die, to be resurrected. Like that's all in the, you know, the column of sort of doctrine and necessary, that's the core, that's the center. You, you mentioned earlier about centered sets, like that's the center. And there is, there are things to be believed rightly in that center, but there's this whole process of getting there. And that's again, what kind of what we talked about is, is John is telling us a story of disciples journeying from this initial attraction and, and sort of young belief, thin belief, let's call it, to what Thomas ultimately confesses this thick belief in who God is as my Lord and my God is what he says. One of the things I wanted to hit before we shut it down is that proclamation that he makes is that you are Lord and you are God. Like, And as we're, as we're talking about, the Pharisees didn't know it would be God. And the Jesus is Lord obviously flies in the face of Caesar uh, because that was the saying about Caesar, that Caesar is Lord. But saying... Jesus is Lord is not necessarily saying Jesus is God. Uh, and Thomas makes it a point to say both in this, in this passage. And uh, I just thought that was like super interesting. Like, not only are you my ruler, you are my king that I'm going to follow, but you're also God. And that, that revelation is, it changes everything for Thomas. It, it changes everything for us. It does. And and then on the heels, of, I mean, the reason we talk about the Thomas story is that's the last story that John tells us before he tells us why he wrote his book. And the next phrase John gives us is, I've written all of these things so that you may come to the belief that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the son of God. Wow. That's why that story is there. Thomas makes that profession. And then John says, this is why the story exists so that you can come to this full belief that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of God.